Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. You're listening to On the Environment, a podcast series from the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy. For more information, visit the website at envirocenter.yale.edu. Hello. My name is Kendall Barbary. I'm a master's candidate at the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies. I'm in the studio today with my colleague, Werner Wilson, and with Dr. Gunnar Knapp. He's a professor of economics and a newly appointed director of the Institute of Social and Economic Research at the University of Alaska in Anchorage. After earning his bachelor's degree and PhD in economics from Yale University, Dr. Knapp relocated to Alaska, where he's studied and observed resource policy issues from forests to fisheries to mining for more than three decades. Dr. Knapp is an internationally recognized scholar for his work on fisheries markets and management of fisheries resources in Alaska and worldwide, and much of this has focused on the Alaska salmon fishery. Dr. Knapp is currently working on a book titled The Economics of Fish. Today, Werner and I are talking with Dr. Knapp about his work with the Institute of Social and Economic Research and Alaska resource policies more broadly. During the first half of the program, we'll talk about some of the challenges of researching and implementing public policy, and the second half of the program will focus more specifically on fisheries issues and critical resource issues in Alaska and Alaska's Bristol Bay. Dr. Knapp, thank you for joining us. It's my pleasure to be here. Um, So you graduated from Yale with a PhD in economics in 1981, and then you moved to Alaska. What inspired this move? Well, I think uh, in large part it was uh, uh, looking for adventure and also um, a place of beauty and wilderness. I had a chance to go up there for an interviewing trip, and I was just blown away with uh, how gorgeous uh, it was and how exciting uh, Alaska was, and I thought, this is the place I want to be. Excellent. So now Connecticut and Alaska are very different places with very different social and resource and policy issues. What was the learning curve like going to this new place? The learning curve was long, and I'm still on it. Uh, I think that, uh, and one of the general points that I think that I've learned in my career and that I'm going to be talking about in my seminar today is that um, resource policies are complex. And the, and the more you study them, the more you keep learning, and the more you keep learning the subtleties and nuances. And that's what Alaska's uh, been like for me. Uh, just uh, I, there are incredibly interesting and complex resource issues, and uh, you, uh, you never stop learning. And, and if you keep thinking, you, you never stop having more insights. As you have to learn the history, you have to learn the geography, you have to learn the sort of resource base. You have to learn the culture of the peoples that live there. Uh, you have to learn the, the politics. And the more, you, uh, the more you study, the more people you talk to, the more, the more you begin to appreciate the, the complexity uh, and um, challenges of the issue. So let me ask, have you had any particular experiences in the field that have shaped your approach to economics and policymaking in Alaska? Uh, I, I would say I've had innumerable uh, experiences in the field, and, and uh, some of them humbling, uh, basically. And by in the field, you know, for me, in the field is partly going out to places like, say, Bristol Bay, where, where the fish are or where the activity is going on. But uh, uh, in my case, just as much talking with the people. And so anywhere in Alaska is the field. I, I study Alaska and Alaskans, and, and um, the more 
people I talk to, uh, the more insights I get. I'll give you one example that made an enormous impression on me. You know, I, I was trained as an economist, and so economists think, well, uh, what are you trying to do in your economic policies? You're trying to, trying to become more efficient. And so if you can, if you can do something, uh, you know, sort of using less labor, that's a, that's a good, that's a good thing. And, uh, so there was a very controversial, um, policy in Alaska's Chignik salmon fishery uh, a number of years ago where uh, they uh, instituted a co-op and the details are complicated but basically one of the uh, um, implications was that people were going to be able to catch the same amount of fish but in a much shorter time. So instead of fishing for you know all summer you might be able to catch exactly the same number of fish in um, you know say two weeks of fishing on and off. And so I uh, was talking to somebody uh, in the community who was adamantly against this policy, a woman in the community. And uh, I said, well, I, I just don't understand why you are so adamantly against something that allows you to, to sort of earn the same amount of money in uh, you know, one-fifth the number of days of work. And she said, you don't understand. When our men aren't fishing, they're drinking. And her point was that uh, that this community was a healthy community when people fished all summer, and it was a very unhealthy community when people had uh, a sort of time on their hands. And that is the kind of insight that they don't teach you in economics graduate school at Yale or most places. So what sort of trickle-down effects has that had on your policymaking? What, what that and, and any number of other similar conversations and insights have, has, have given me uh, um, a fair amount of humility about uh, uh, the extent to which uh, I, you know, sort of about how much expertise I really have and as to uh, the, the extent of the sort of traditional learning that I have, so the formal learning as a trained economist, uh, I'm I'm tend to be more skeptical about uh, how how far I can trust the policy implications that I personally draw from that. So right now, or you work as a professor of economics, and you were recently appointed as the director of the Institute and Social and Economic Research at the University of Alaska in Anchorage. And part of the mission of that institute is to help people understand social and economic systems and to support informed decision-making. Um, what does this mean to you, kind of an extension of what you learned in Chignik, and how do you work to communicate these issues in a way that is understandable to a range of residents and policymakers alike? Well, we at our Institute of Social and Economic Research, or ICER, which has for 52 years been part of the University of Alaska, uh, we view our job, I think, basically as to study Alaska and help Alaskans understand Alaska, in particular as it applies to the policy issues we face. And... Um, uh, I think it's uh, as simple as that to help people understand uh, sort of what the choices are and the implications of different decisions that, that we make. And uh, uh, so it's things such as um, what, what, is, what is actually driving our economy? 
And, and so, for example, something that's not obvious to uh, most people is how very, very heavily dependent uh, the state of Alaska is on oil industry revenues and on the federal government as uh, sources of where the money comes in that uh, sort of drives Alaska's economy and, and makes it mostly a fairly prosperous state. So it's, it's our job to try to help people understand that, uh, both by studying the issues and, and, uh, and sort of getting the information, but just as importantly by, by communicating it in a way that people can understand. And I might say not by, uh, by being, uh, communicating it objectively. So our job is not there to say, here is what we ought to be doing in Alaska. Our job is to say, here are choices we face. Here are implications of different choices. Here are facts that can um, help, uh, help us understand and have intelligent discussions about uh, our choices about our fisheries, our oil, our <laughs> transportation development, uh, tourism, and, and the dozens or hundreds of other issues we face. So as an extension of that, the state of Alaska, as you said, is heavily dependent on revenues um, from natural resource management. And one of the primary sources is Prudhoe Bay oil development. Um, and that has declined substantially in recent years. So Alaska also lacks a major tax base, and the state is looking for more ways to sustain and increase revenues in order to support its growing population. What are the implications of this pressure to develop? Um, what sort of impacts is it having on the state? Well, I think that uh, the impact right at the moment is uh, perhaps more psychological than uh, actual or real yet. We face a real fiscal challenge uh, in Alaska and, and economic challenge. And the challenge is that we have a state which is a prosperous and wealthy state and ha enjoys high levels of quality public services uh, and, and also an economy that's significantly driven by public spending and, and state spending. Um, and uh, yet that is overwhelmingly dependent on oil revenue and oil production is declining steadily. And uh, overwhelmingly, I mean, as in 90% of the state's revenues come from uh, oil. And uh, we, we've been buffered uh, from the effects of that because oil prices have been rising. Uh, but, uh, you know, it, it doesn't matter what the oil price is. If, you, if, if the oil production keeps uh, declining, eventually you're going to have less revenue. And um, that is going to force some really tough choices because of the dependence of our education system and uh, our... our economy uh, and uh, much of our industries uh, other than um, you know other than oil are in effect subsidized in various ways by oil we've got for example very valuable fisheries but uh, you know part of the cost of managing those fisheries comes from the oil revenues and I could go on and on like this so uh, within probably the next decade, we're going to face some really tough choices. And it's not obvious what to do about it other than to cut back uh, on the spending, which will be really difficult. And people say, well, you should, you know, there's, there's a lot of Alaskans who argue, well, we need to develop our resources more so we'll, we'll get, uh, you know, we'll get more revenue. But how 
you know, how do you do that? Where where do you find actually economic resources that are that are profitable enough so that they could they could pay those kinds of state revenues? And even more, how do you do that uh, while overcoming the um, uh, challenges that further development faces, sort of for environmental risk uh, or just the quality of life that uh, that we like? So we are we are conflicted. Uh, among ourselves in uh, in how to deal with this situation. So we're a little bit like a, a family that has, uh, you know, a high income but are about to lose their job. And, you know, they've got some good savings, but uh, we're, they're, we're used to a lot of things. And how are you going to make the adjustment? We haven't really yet. Could you help us here in New Haven to understand a little bit more about um, what those critical issues are? Describe some of the critical issues that people and the state of Alaska are facing, in addition to oil. So, when you talk about Alaska and Alaskans, I think an extremely important distinction is between urban Alaska and rural Alaska. And the great majority of Alaskans live in urban Alaska. Like, and say half of the people live in my hometown of Anchorage. Now, Anchorage is a modern American city with a high quality of life, uh, excellent infrastructure, university, concert halls, uh, uh, fine restaurants. Uh, and um, so we, we face one set of challenges. And our challenges are relate mainly to well, we're worried about how we're going to keep all this if the uh, if uh, you know the oil revenues decline. So, uh, but if you go out to rural Alaska, you have some of the poorest places in the United States, um, uh, places where the there is no running water, there is no sewage, uh, where every cost uh, is extremely high. Uh, transportation is very difficult. Healthcare is minimal. The uh, education system is terrible, and very stark social challenges of um, uh, child abuse, suicide, alcoholism, drug abuse—really very difficult situations, and and uh, in very difficult cultural transition. And uh, the places that the, the issues there are. Um, I say much more severe and, and and extremely different. How are you going to create a a viable long-term lifestyle uh, in these places that um, uh, that uh, maintains the uh, traditional values uh, of these Alaska Native groups and, and allows them to live in the places where they've always lived, uh, and yet overcomes these this economic dependency and these difficult cultural problems. So I'd say the rural Alaska, that, that's a very big and complicated set of issues, and that's, uh, that's one. There are other issues that uh, you know, aren't, aren't as large, but they, they include, for example, we're increasingly, uh, we have a growing tourism industry, but we have what I like to think of as the Hawaii problem. How do you, how do you keep paradise and yet make money off showing it to, to other people? So how do you, how, how do you Bring in tourists and and earn money off them, to put it crassly, and and create create an economic base without being overrun with them and having them spoil things. And this is a big issue in Southeast Alaska, where you know a cruise ship can come in and there are more people on the cruise ship than there are in the community, and it 
and, and you get sort of tacky uh, souvenir joints uh, being built along the main drag. Uh, certainly there are many issues in the fisheries, uh, which we'll, we'll talk more about relating to how do we drive economic value out of the fisheries in light of market competition, in light of the uncertainties associated associate with climate change. Um, and I think that uh, really the you know, longest, longest term is the, the, and this is sort of the decades long going back and going forward, conflict between developing Alaska for the benefit of Alaskans and the nation and the values of undeveloped wilderness Alaska um, and how, how to find that balance. That's a tiny fraction of the, of the issues we face. So you did talk about the difference between places like Anchorage, where there's a very large population and you have a lot of amenities, mm-hmm. and places in more kind of rural Alaska that are hard to access, and people there also face um, different social and economic conditions. How do you think that policy might be used in order to address some of the issues that we face in that case? Well, there we have the question, what do you mean by by policy? What I tend to, uh, I suppose when I moved to Alaska, uh, I was young and optimistic and uh, thought, well, policy and and sort of studying these issues and my enlightened ability to inform people based on my knowledge acquired in graduate school can help show people sort of the best choices or at least help people illuminate them. And of course, that is in fact, the mission of our institute. But uh, over time, uh, you could call it partly uh, age or partly cynicism or partly experience, I've come to uh, see a lot of these things as raw politics uh, and uh, that that at its best, you try to come up with uh, sort of look for win-win policies. How can... How can you come up with ways to sort of promote development that also protect the environment or create extra incentives? Or how can you how can you find the areas ways in which um, helping uh, rural Alaska benefits urban Alaska so that it doesn't become as it has sometimes the debate degenerates into are we going to spend the money in uh, urban Alaska, where you know a dollar of public services benefits a lot more people, or are we going to spend it in rural Alaska, where it's much much higher cost per capita to educate a kid or to um, you know provide any any kind of service? I like to think that better information will, in general, um, reduce the likelihood of doing really stupid things. And, you know, and, and don't underestimate the value of that. <laughs> you know, so, so often the policy, the sort of policy analysis can, can help to point out not so much all the subtle nuances that you might think about here in graduate school, but what are really stupid things. And we've got, you know, I, I might, what do I mean by really stupid things? Uh, so, um, you know, uh, there are certain ideas that have been popular forever uh, in Alaska, such as, well, we'll, We'll, um, we can have tremendous economic development if we just build roads you know, sort of all across the state. 
you know, and it, it, if, if, if things were expensive and without a road, they'd be less expensive. So let's build roads. And you can spend a lot of money in, in a short time building roads and other kinds of infrastructure. But uh, sort of the policy analysis can be in things as simple as saying, actually, you know, these roads you're talking about would cost as much as the entire savings in our permanent fund dividend program. And do we really want that more than the other uses we could put to that money? So along those lines, what do you think economics and policy misses? I think economics and policy often misses uh, difficult to state or even see things that matter a lot to people, such as uh, just the, uh, just the, for example, the People often like to have things the way they are, even though it might not make sense to <laughs> somebody, uh, you know, uh, who comes in from uh, outside the community. Uh, and so, uh, for example, a fascinating debate uh, that I studied many years ago was the debate over whether a road should be built to the port of Cordova, um, which is a, a beautiful spot on Prince William Sound. And uh, the accessible only by sea. And there was one, the community was split right down the middle. We found that out by surveying the residents, split 50-50 down the middle between those who strongly supported a road and strongly hated a road. And uh, what is difficult in sort of policy analysis to see is the, is the sort of various and subtle reasons for which people had such strong opinions. And they're related to things such as, uh, you know, just sort of the changing the way in which road access can change the entire character of a place, who you see, who you interact with, uh, what kind of people move there, um, uh, what kind of businesses get established there. Um, and, and I suppose it's also difficult for policy analysis to fully understand the dynamic longer-term implications of, uh, for example, that that kind of, of decision. You know, well, if you have the road, well, then the ferry service will be reduced. And if you don't have the ferry service, then the kids won't travel to football games on the ferry. And it's actually riding on the ferry with the kids on the football team that is the best experience in high school or whatever. Th these are the kind of subtle things that uh, you, it's hard to see if you if you sort of take an academic approach or even or even appreciate. But as you as you live in a community and and if you if you listen, you begin to hear those kinds of things. Excellent. So shifting gears just a little bit, a substantial amount of your work focuses on fisheries issues in Alaska, um, and we'll talk about more of this in the second half with Werner, but. I'm just curious what compels you to work on fisheries economics and maybe a little bit about how Alaska fisheries policy and management has changed during your time in the state. Well, I didn't start out working on fisheries. Um, actually, I wrote my dissertation at Yale on um, uh, the supply of timber from non-industrial private forests, which was a topic that interested me because our family were private forest holders in New Hampshire. And uh, I didn't actually know anything about fish. Uh, but uh, first of all, <laughs> you know, sort of why get interested in fishing and fish? Well, one thing is you can't help 
but get interested in fishing and fish when you live in Alaska. The place is fish crazy. There are fish everywhere, uh, and um, fishing, whether it be sport fishing, uh, subsistence fishing, and commercial fishing, is huge everywhere in Alaska. So everybody fishes, and everybody eats fish. And as it happened, I, uh, for the first 10 years of my career, mostly studied other topics, but I uh, ended up, sure enough, uh, doing a study that, as part of re a re review of different sectors of the state's economy that we were doing, uh, I did a review of the fishing industry, and I was hooked. And in that, um, in that particular study, I wrote one chapter on uh, fish prices, which is sort of one of the things that were going on. And, uh, and I, so I learned a little bit about the factors that affected fish prices. And that was right the year before Alaska salmon prices began a drastic crash uh, that uh, drastically affected the entire salmon industry. Um, and I was asked to do a study on that. And that was endlessly fascinating because what was happening was the um, effects of uh, salmon farming uh, in Norway and Chile beginning to impact the markets for Alaska salmon. And uh, that became, uh, that was an absolutely fascinating topic and it led oppor to opportunities for me f to travel first to Japan, which was the major market, and, and sort of begin to recognize how events in, in Japan, a place as unlike Alaska as you can imagine, uh, uh, sort of came back directly to affect fishermen in, in Alaska. And uh, then I, uh, of course, began to travel around and talk to fishermen, and it was immediately drawn into all the amazing issues related to fisheries management. And then I began to associate with um, other fisheries economists uh, in the United States and uh, internationally and in in the the associations of those people uh, met uh, what have become lifelong friends and colleagues. And uh, so once you're hooked, hooked on this area, uh, you know, there's, there's no going back. And, uh, and it's, it's endlessly fascinating. I think fishermen are, um, fish, first of all, fishing communities are great. They're on the water. They're beautiful places. Fishermen are really interesting and, and really neat people. Um, and uh, I, some of the most intelligent people I've met anywhere are, are fishermen, many of whom actually have you know, sort of graduate degrees to equal mine and, and have gone in the, into that. And, uh, and then I think the issues are endlessly fascinating. And in fact, if you just think about salmon, that is tied in with everything from gem genetically modified foods to uh, the f you know, sort of the future of the oceans to... Um, uh, critical environmental issues to the way resource markets work. Everything's in there with fish. Now, a moment ago, you mentioned fisheries management, and there are many types of fisheries management in Alaska. And some of the research that you've done points to trends in allocation-based fisheries management. What are the major impacts of allocation-based management, and what are some of the implications uh, um, for some of Alaska's major fisheries? Well, let's first of all talk briefly about what, what do we mean by allocation-based management. And uh, this is an enormous simplification, but basically the, the world's commercial fisheries uh, are in a long-term transition from what we might call open access to um, uh, managed open access 
to uh, restricted access to allocation-based. So, uh, you know, if you think about a fishery where there's no government and so on, um, and there's no rules, uh, that uh, it's not really a problem. And that's the way f- all fisheries were originally. It's not really a problem as long as there aren't too many fishermen and as long as their technology is, is uh, sort of ability to catch fish is small relative to the number of fish. But as technology has improved and as the number of fishermen has cr- have grown, then you, if you don't have any rules, then you can very quickly begin to threaten the resource and, and lead to the problems we've seen, we've seen in many of the world's oceans with many of the world's fish stocks. And so then, then the, the trend was for governments to come in and, and impose restrictions of various sorts to try to control overfishing. Uh, and a lot of these, uh, and, and this was sort of the, the way Alaska fisheries management and U.S. fisheries management was, most of it was, uh, un, until just maybe a decade and a half ago or two decades ago. So there are all kinds of restrictions uh, that said, well, we're going to have a short fishing season or we're going to say you can only use a certain kind of boat or only a certain kind of gear. And the, the idea is to reduce the catches. But it wasn't very successful. And it also led to a lot of uh, inefficiency. Uh, so if you, say, if you say, for example, you got to use a small boat, well, that automatically makes your fishery more expensive and less efficient and less profitable. And uh, so the trend uh, in uh, so over the past several decades is to go to what we can call allocation-based management, where you say, instead of saying you can go out and so everybody, everybody's competing to catch the fish, say, okay, you, either you or your organization, has a certain allocation or a certain share of the fish, and that's all you're allowed to catch. And then if you, if you get into that mode where you have an allocation that's what you can catch, then you focus your energy on how can I catch that allocation more, um, more cheaply and more efficiently and get better value out of it rather than how can I catch it quickly and, uh, and, and sort of how can I compete with, with so-and-so. And also it creates more of a stewardship motive because if I know if I, have, if I have 1% of the catch in this fishery, now I have a long-term interest in having that fishery be around next year and the following year and furthermore to have it grow. And now I'm, instead of telling the managers, stop telling us we can't go fishing, now I say, Stop us from going fishing so we can grow the fish to a larger stock. And so this is the sort of the principle of allocation-based management. And uh, so economists love allocation-based management because it creates efficiency. And, uh, and I, I almost instinctively and naturally as a trained economist felt that way as, as I first approached this issue. Uh, but <clears throat> living in Alaska and getting around and talking to people, I began to recognize, and I'm still on this learning curve, all the downsides of allocation-based management, which doesn't make me argue against it so much as be much more aware that it's a much more nuanced issue where I should be careful not to say this is the way to go, but rather if you go this way, you can get these advantages, but here are some other considerations. When you have an allocation, then, you know, that's great for the person who has that allocation. It's not great for the person who doesn't have that allocation. It's not great for the young person who can't, who finds it difficult to get into fishing because the only way you can get an allocation is to, is, is to buy a permit or, or buy quota. Um, it, uh, it, 
completely changes the cultural relationships in communities. If you have a fishing community, it's one thing where everybody is a fisherman and anybody can go fishing who wants to. Uh, that is a, That leads to one kind of culture. It's another thing where Joe down the street has an allocation of a million pounds, which he's built up, and Bill and Sam, his next-door neighbors, who he grew up with and they all fished together, didn't get any allocations, or maybe they sold those because they needed some money, and now they're out of the fishery. Uh, and uh, so you've got, you can have huge social issues arise, or to, or to go to another complex stage. What tends to happen is if you have allocations and then people can sell those allocations, they tend to get bought up by um, sort of people from other areas, can lead to the death of fishing communities. And it's sort of all the issues that arise with the sort of decline of the small family farm in farming areas of the United States and sort of replace, replacement by sort of large corporate farming, the analo- analogous kind of thing can happen in the fisheries. So uh, Alaska, but actually the whole world, is a, is a fascinating study in the sort of economic opportunities and even conservation opportunities, but also social uh, and economic and cultural challenges that arise from this kind of transition. So I have one last question before we move on to the second half of the program. And a lot of what I'm hearing right now is that economics, to a certain extent, is about uncertainty. Um, In Alaska, it seems like uncertainty is abound. There's uncertainty in the future of oil production and in the development and impacts of offshore oil and gas. There's uncertainty implicit in fisheries markets uh, due to fluctuations in fish returns, market demands, world market price, and the impacts of a changing climate. There's also uncertainty and mineral development, which we haven't really touched on yet today, due to the variability in the value of metals, um, whether or not mining and mineral development will impair other natural resources and to what extent. And so my question is just what are some challenges that Alaskans face moving into this uncertain future and what advice do you have moving forward? Well, first of all, you're, you're right. Uh, uncertainty affects all of us. Uh, you know, we're, we're all, wherever we are, we're part of the global economy, and uh, the global economy, uh, we, uh, it, it, prosperity is not <laughs> a guaranteed thing, as this country was reminded with this devastating uh, recession that we uh, suffered a few years back and, and still aren't out of. And uh, the whole global economy remains vulnerable to um, things like uh, what will be the outcome of the Arab Spring or, 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 or will China succeed in continuing its growth and, and these kinds of things. Um, in some sense, uh, Alaska is particularly vulnerable to uh, what happens in the whole world economic system because we are a raw material producer, exporter, of producer of oil and minerals and so on, and, and uh, raw materials resource prices fluctuate more than anything when the, when the world economy fluctuates. So we face market uncertainty. We face climate change uncertainty, which, um, for example, the, uh, the changes in the, uh, in the climate could have potentially drastic implications for uh, fish stocks in Alaska. Uh, partly just through the temperature of the water, which affects what kind of species uh, 
thrive, but also this extremely scary phenomenon of ocean acidification, which um, indeed threatens the entire, you know, sort of uh, ecosystems in 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 the oceans. And so, uh, I always tell fishermen and anybody else who asks that I think the biggest challenge for our Alaska fisheries, aside from all the sort of market and political challenges, is the, you know, above those is the dependence, overwhelming dependence on an uncertain uh, sort of ocean system that, that provides the fish. Um, and we have uncertainty, how will, uh, how is the climate going to change and how is it, how's that going to affect, um, say, transportation in the Arctic or, or um both for ourselves and for our competitors, and so on. We have uncertainty whether uh, we'll, we face, shall I say, we face a certain kind of uncertainty that people in New Haven don't face, such as the fact that in 1964, on, uh, we, we had a devastating earthquake. This is an interesting uncertainty to live in a place where you, from one second to the next, you never know whether the en- entire you know building you're in may just fall down, <laughs> as actually happened uh, within uh, the very real living you know memories of people like my wife, uh, and uh, so you know uh, we sort of have um, volcanoes and earthquakes and tsunamis. All those things happen in Alaska, which is a, a land that's sort of very alive. Uh, and uh, then and then we've so all this uncertainty. So how do you how do you deal with it? Well, you, you deal with uncertainty first of all by informing yourself about as much as you can about what what are the things that you face. It's not a good idea to go around completely ignorant of the fact that you know earthquakes happen here or prices do go up and down in this fishery that you're buying this boat for or or, or you know permafrost may be melting in the future as you build this road or buildings um, and so. One, uh, be informed. The second is, uh, I think, uh, the, the strategy for individuals and businesses is the same as it is in your own personal finances. Uh, be diversified. Don't have all your eggs in one basket. Like, you know, we shouldn't have, not a good idea for Alaska to have all its eggs in the oil industry basket uh, in, or all its, its fiscal eggs in that basket, you know, sort of be so dependent on those kind of taxes. We should be, uh, you know, diversified. A diversified economy and and revenue system is is more able to um, relate to uh, uh, you know, deal with shocks. And another is to put in place uh, mechanisms so that you're better able to respond to the un uh, to the unforeseen. And so, for example, again, if you're in a place that could have earthquakes. We have some earthquake supplies on hand in your home and, you know, in effect in in the city too. If you are, um, uh, expect that you you might be subject to an oil price shock, it would be disastrous fiscally for the state of Alaska if if oil prices fall even a few dollars this year. Well, we know that can happen, so have some savings. Uh, If you... um, if you, uh, I think that from time to time we have so-called fisheries disaster, economic disasters in Alaska, and we, uh, you know, everybody says, oh my God, the fish didn't show up, the fishermen are hurting. Well, you might want to put in place sort of what's the plan? 
if that, if that happens rather than saying, oh, my God, you know, but sort of say, okay, here is what we will do and what we won't do if the fish don't show up. Uh, but uh, ultimately, we're all, we're all subject to uncertainty. We're probably subject to more uncertainty than we realize, and, um, and we have to be adaptable and, and try to be informed and try to prepare. Dr. Knapp, thank you for joining us. My real pleasure.